Hello, producer Jonah here, and welcome to Principle of Charity. This is part one of the conversation where Emil will do his best to tease out the nuances of the topic. Part two, where Lloyd has a personal conversation on the couch with our guests, will be released next week. And if you like what you hear today and want to help us on the mission to inject curiosity and generosity into difficult conversations, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also show your support on our socials or your socials and do what you can to spread the word. Enjoy. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight, and to first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Our Principle of Charity personal challenge today is about fear of conflict. We often talk about challenging conversations and productive conflict in this podcast. And this week, I was dealing with the CEO and his executive team. And a key symptom that emerged was their fear of conflict. Conflict is productive when people challenge and improve one another's ideas. Good challenge and conflict avoids personal attacks and focuses on issues that are getting in the way of objectives. But when there is a fear of conflict, what you will find is people or team members being nice to everyone and holding back on their points of view. And so the team's marketplace of ideas is limited and awkward truths are not dealt with. And so this week, the personal challenge goes out to leaders. How easy are you making for conflict to emerge in your team culture? And what are you doing to make people more capable of challenging conversations? Emil, what's our topic today? Thanks, Lloyd. Our topic today is, should we aim to be thin? We live in a culture that is obsessed by weight. From the statistics I've gleaned, Lloyd, about a third of adult women in the US are on a diet at any given time and a fifth of men. And those who aren't dieting are thinking about dieting, with well over half of all adults actively wanting to lose weight, with men really only slightly trailing women. And the fear of being fat pervades young people too, with a majority of adolescents and even younger kids scared of becoming fat. To feed that fear or, or to help people manage their weight, depending on the way one looks at things, there's a global weight loss and management industry that's expected to surpass $400 billion US by 2030. So what's going on here? Why is there a near pervasive belief that it's good to be thin and bad to be fat? Well, in one sense, the answer is easy. There's an overwhelming medical consensus that being overweight carries a number of significant health issues with obesity increasing the risk of diabetes, heart disease, some cancers affecting reproductive and respiratory function amongst a number of others. And there are a lot of overweight people with a third of the world either overweight or obese and even up to 70% in high income countries like the US. But if you pause for a moment this just doesn't nearly explain the cultural paranoia around weight. For example, exercise and nutrition account for roughly the same amount of health issues as weight. Yet whilst there are huge industries around fitness and nutrition, people aren't walking around terrified that they may be unfit or shamed for eating too much processed foods. In this episode, we'll explore some of the reasons why fat has come to signify just so much 
looking at issues around self-discipline as well as beauty and attractiveness. But what we do know, though, Lloyd, is that there is an inordinate amount of shaming, bullying, and discrimination that comes from being fat. And when one isn't actively being ostracized, many people who see themselves as overweight turn on themselves with feelings of shame and inadequacy that can lead to depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, and eating disorders, of course. What's interesting is that in the last decade or so, a number of challenges to the dominant narrative around fat have come to the fore with movements like health at every size, which say that one can be fat but still healthy and want doctors to focus on biomarkers like blood pressure and cholesterol levels, not on a person's weight. There's also a growing understanding of how incredibly difficult it actually is to lose weight and to keep it off, with 95% of all dieters regaining their lost weight within one to five years. And there's an understanding of the significant genetic factors that influence weight too. And of course, a deep appreciation for the socioeconomic factors that contribute to weight. The most extreme challenge to the VAT narrative, however, comes from the fat activist movement, which not only challenges the medical consensus around fat, but sees fat as discrimination, as akin to other forms of discrimination like racism and sexism. And it wants fat to be not just accepted, but celebrated in the way we encourage pride in gender, race, and sexual identity. So we're hoping to explore all of this and more in this episode. And to do this, we've chosen two guests who are not medical experts, but who are advocates on different sides of the fat activist spectrum. Lloyd, before you introduce the guests, I wanted to just declare my own hand here. I'm skinny. I've always been skinny. In my teens and 20s, I tried everything to put on muscle and weight with gym, protein shakes, eating so much more than I wanted, but nothing worked. Motherly figures would always say to me and still do, you're so skinny, you need to eat up. And I try. And I've since made peace with my body, but in a weird inverse way, I've had a sense of just how hardwired we can be to certain weight. And finally, I should add that the reason I've used the word fat rather than overweight is that it's the most accepted term these days on the progressive side, at least, with overweight implying that one's not normal. So with all that said, Lloyd, who do we have to help us through this topic? Emil, our two guests today are Helen Plackrose and Tigress Osborne. Let me tell you a little bit about Helen first. Helen is a liberal humanist and political and cultural writer and commentator. Helen is best known for her participation in the Grievance Studies Affair. This was based on a project to highlight poor scholarship and the erosion of standards in a number of academic fields. The project entailed submitting bogus papers to academic journals in cultural, queer, race, gender, and fat studies to determine whether they would pass through peer review and be accepted for publication. Several papers were published. Jonathan Haidt referred to Helen and her colleagues as whistleblowers who exposed an academic subculture that tolerate fraud. Helen is also the founder of Counterweight, which was a reaction to the growth of implicit bias training, and she has also been the editor of Aero Magazine, a magazine with a strong liberal and humanist slant. Our other guest today, Emil, is Tigress Osborne. Tigress is a fat right advocate and the executive director of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, NAFA. It is the world's oldest organization working towards equality at every size. Tigress is a co-founding leader of the Campaign for Size Freedom, which supports passing legislation to outlaw size discrimination. Tigress has degrees in English and African studies. She's a feminist teacher and writer and has a professional background in youth empowerment 
and diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Emil, with that, let's bring on the guests. Well, thank you so much, uh, Tigris and Helen, for joining us on this podcast. Uh, Tigris, I'm going to start with you. As a sort of preamble to the discussion, could you give us a brief sense you know, of what it's like being fat in society today? What forms of discrimination and shaming does your organization seek to prevent? NAFA works to change perceptions of fat in every possible way. Our goal is to end size discrimination, and we think about that in particular in the case of systemic discrimination, things like discrepancy in pay on the job, things like challenging around getting housing, things like uh, public accommodation, the need for space, the need for appropriate seating, the need for public bathrooms that work for larger bodies, those kinds of things. We do care about the more interpersonal forms of discrimination, the kind of body shaming people do like person to person. But our focus as an organization is really on um, supporting fat folks to feel empowered against any of those kinds of discriminations, the thing that they face from their mother-in-law, all the, th- all the way to the things that they face from the government. And, and what sort of discrimination are fat people exposed to, and in, including the interpersonal, like just if you paint a little more of a picture for the audience as to what the experience is like for many people who have weight issues? The experience varies a lot depending on just how big you are, for one thing, uh, the experience of a very, very fat person versus the experience of a person who is, you know, carrying what is considered a little bit of extra weight are going to be very are going to be different, especially around mm. access issues. It starts with everything from jokes, comments, snickers, insults, just people's mm. sense of ownership of your body. If you're a first fat person, that if you're fat, your body is public to be commented on by anyone who wants to whether that is your family or friends, whether that is the person in the grocery store making a comment about what is in your shopping cart, whether that is, you know, the, the, the kid on the street pointing at the fat lady, like whatever that is. In those interpersonal ways, in, uh, in friendships, in dating, in family relationships, the sense that your body is perceived as the cause of all of your problems, whether it actually is mm. or not, there's sort of a pervasive narrative that it is, whether it actually is or not. And so that's Mm. something that fat people deal with every day. Um, And then out in, you know, out in the world, again, you know, I mentioned employment discrimination, housing discrimination. Certainly one of the things we hear most from folks who interact with NAFA is about medical discrimination, about the Mm. way in which healthcare practitioners seem to only be concerned with weight loss and not concerned with other kinds of symptoms or other kinds of things that might be going on when you show up in their space to get treatment or to get help. So medical discrimination is always one we hear great concern about from our constituents. Um, Employment discrimination is one we hear great concern about and that we see a lot of research about uh, wage discrepancy, Mm. about barriers in hiring, opportunities for advancement, even things like corporate culture that's not friendly to fat people. If you have a corporate softball Mm. team and the t-shirt doesn't come in your size, that means you're not seen as a team player in the same way as others, even if you're a really great softball player, that kind of stuff. You know, you talk about some of the shaming side and the way your body is almost co-opted by society and sense that it's, it's, it's theirs to comment on and have a view on. How does that translate sometimes into sense of of self-loathing or depression or I, I guess the way one sees oneself and is that part of what the fat activist movement's trying to do which is to liberate individuals from internalizing that sense of 
fetching. Absolutely. Me. I mean, I think a lot of folks would say that it's almost impossible not to internalize some of those messages. They are so pervasive in the culture that we yeah. are so inundated with them that in order to be able to see your own worth in a larger body or even a body that is perceived as larger, you have mm. to work really hard explicitly at doing that, at sort of undoing, unpacking those messages that you get every day. And some of the messages, again, mm. are very explicitly directed at you. And then some of the messages come from the absence of you. It's not just how you see yourself, it's where you don't see yourself. So you've, mm. you know, you've watched a tremendous amount of television and you haven't seen a single fat person because your life is not worthy of being represented in, you know, in this, mm. in this narrative or whatever. And so so learning to see your presence, your story, yourself as valuable to raise your voice when it's absent, to create visibility for yourself when you are being invisibilized by the culture. I think um, those are some of the things that we we hope just by showing examples of fat people who are always doing that and have always been doing that, yeah, um, yeah, that we sort yeah. of counter some of the mainstream narratives about what you can be as a fat person. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, Helen, uh, I'm, we're going to move to the health side uh, in a second, but I just briefly, you know, I've seen you refer to yourself as obese. And before we get into all the issues around fat, would you agree in general that there's a lot of shaming and discrimination going on against people who are overweight and obese? Or, or I don't know if you prefer the word fat to the more medical terms? I personally prefer obese but i'm i'm happy to mm -hmm. to use fat um if uh, if other people are more they're more comfortable with that but yes i i absolutely uh, agree that um there is um a lot i mean only only three times in my real life have i been explicitly shamed for being mm -hmm. fat but online particularly you know, with, with some of the work I do, because I, I get into um, political and cultural issues, this annoys various people. So I, I get referred to as a gelatinous mound of lard and um, these kinds of things. And, and recently something happened where, where somebody took a, a thing of me out of context and it went around the whole sort of bodybuilding um, fitness thing. And, and there were just hundreds, maybe thousands at one point of people making very obnoxious and spiteful comments about my appearance. And I, fortunately, and I, I know this, that this is not the case for everybody, I genuinely don't care. I, I pity mm. people who feel like that. So I was not um, affected um, psychologically like this and uh, by this. And I was able to say, well, thank you, gentlemen. I do not at this time need any help being rolled back in the sea. And I do not want to have sex with any of you either and kind of move on from that. But... Um, yeah, that, no, that that does happen, and 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 Tigris is, is quite great. There's plenty of evidence to show that shaming fat people, drawing attention to their weight, from being unkind, does not help at all with with mm. weight loss. It makes people feel isolated, alienated. They may feel less like going out. They may feel less like doing things. They may comfort eat. It is the opposite of of helpful. Yeah, that's interesting because often you know, shame, we did an episode on shame and its function in society is to sort of help define those boundaries of what's acceptable or not and, and incentivize people to stay within the boundaries. But of course, you're referring to the fact that people who are shamed for being overweight might feel worse about themselves and therefore eat more. You know, it doesn't even fulfill the function that it's serving, notwithstanding how immoral it is in the first place. But 
Helen, I, I'm just keen to get to the basics here, and I know that we purposefully didn't bring two medical experts on, but as the medical establishment see it, what are just the basic health implications of being fat? And I'm talking overweight here through to obese. I'm essentially a, a care assistant for 17 years who kind of fell into this political stuff. So, so that's the area I'm coming from. These are the texts that I mostly read before I, I went into any of this. And so while hmm. studies vary considerably in what they, they find, meta-studies overall find a, um, a greater sort of problem with um, cardiovascular issues, a greater tendency to um, heart attack and stroke, mm. a uh, reduction of, of life expectancy from anywhere between three to 10 years, um, musculoskeletal uh, problems, um, diabetes, um, obese adults are, like, are five times more likely to have diabetes than Adults of you know within the recommended range, children four times more likely, and um, asthma, uh, sleep apnea, gallstones, liver, fatty liver, kidney problems, polycystic ovary syndrome, um, and uh, various sort of pr- problems with fertility, and and also with mental health. And that so how much of that is to do with societal attitudes, and how much is to do with you know, feeling yourself being kind of limited because this is something I think people often miss when we can we can talk about links to um, sort of greater likelihood of um, developing very various conditions. And I, I can can speak to to that. I have pre diabetes, fatty liver, my kidneys have a problem. I have polycystic ovary syndrome. I'm going to need new knees fairly soon. You know, gastric reflux. A lot of those things which. I have when I am I am fat, which I don't have when I'm not fat. So those are the things. But just actually being this size, I am what in the medical thing would would be considered um, extra morbidly obese. My BMI is over fifty. In the sort of discourse um, among sort of fat body um, positivity, I, I am the super fat, and just trying to move around. So. Trying to realize I'm I'm double the weight that I I am accustomed to being, which is also the um, the weight that that I'm sort of recommended to be. So everything I do is like doing it with another person on my back. Mm. It's just I, I try and get this through to slim people who well recently when I was in hospital for problems related uh, to to this, someone I was using a, a boxing thing and a, a rowing machine. They're saying, "What do I just walk? Do gentle exercise? Just walk." I was like, it's much, much easier for me to use a rowing machine, a boxing thing, than, than walk. walking. You imagine walking a mile carrying somebody of your own weight on your back and then see how, how difficult that is. You know, if you can't reach your own toes, for example, and you, you don't bend in the middle. So these are the, the, the kind, and it's just very uncomfortable. Yeah. My son asked me to carry him up the stairs yesterday. He's 13 and I refused because it was too heavy. So, um, I can only imagine. Tigress, just from the fat activist point of view, because I know there have been a number of challenges thrown at the conventional medical wisdom and science around the correlations with a whole range of the of medical conditions that, that Helen mentioned. Mm-hmm. What are these challenges that have been thrown at the mainstream medical view? I think one of the challenges we throw most often is that most people in looking at medical information do not seem to understand the difference between correlation and causation. You know, everything that we just just heard from Helen as things that correlate with fat or things where fat people seem to be at higher risk. We actually 
often do not know where what causes the correlation. Do, are there more fat people with diabetes because being fat makes you more likely to get diabetes? Or is there something about diabetes that makes you more likely to get fat? You know, and, mm-hmm. and you can kind of look at that in a lot of the medical areas. We also know that people tend to, especially when we're talking about the public, listening to medical information and the deciding that they know everything about fat people's profiles, people tend to listen to anecdotal evidence. So for example, mm-hmm. you know, Helen says, well, I, I'm, I've got this, 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 and this that are easier for me when I'm smaller. And someone else the same size ha- doesn't have this, 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 and this. But we're more likely to listen to what Helen's saying because it goes along with our conventional wisdom about, like our conventional beliefs about fat and health than the person who is the 350-pound triathlete who certainly can touch their toes and who doesn't feel like they're carrying an extra person uh, and could actually carry an extra person on top of their 350 pounds. We, we, we just say that person's an anomaly. Obviously, the person who has all the health problems is the one who represents what is true. But isn't this where data comes in, Tigress? That, you know, the data would say who's the anomaly and who's the average, and that's the job of the medical establishment to work out what's what. Absolutely. And so one of the challenges that we often make with the data is... Has this data separated active fat people from inactive fat people? Has this data separated people who've always been fat from people who have yo-yo dieted their way to a certain size? Where is um, what we use the term weight cycling instead of dieting because people gain and regain, gain and regain. That's the common pattern. Where is weight cycling a part of the profile of what is happening to folks? And where do we see different results from people who aren't weight cycling? What about the data of people who are larger, even very larger, We have an assumption that people who have bad knees and are fat have them because they're fat and that they are not going to be able to recover from surgery. But there's actually data that shows that sometimes carrying a little more weight helps you recover from knee surgery. So so, so part of the question is not just what does the data say, but also which data are we looking at? Are we analyzing the data critically? Are we taking the sort of headline of the data report or are we actually looking at what the research says? And also, what's the motivation behind the research? Did it start as weight neutral or did it start from a premise that obesity is bad and now we have to figure out how? Um, And also who funds the research? It is much harder to get research funded that is weight neutral than to get research funded that is looking for solutions to obesity because there's much more money in looking for solutions to obesity than there is in establishing that being fat is just a natural part of the human condition. So we have a lot of questions about data and research. Because, you know, in a sense, there are always questions one could ask, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to get conclusive science around so much to do with health. I mean, we don't even know really what's healthy to eat. Like, how much are you bringing your ideology into reading the science, given the medical consensus is pretty clear that being overweight is not good for you health wise? That is the mainstream medical consensus now. Yeah. There is more challenge to that consensus than people think that there is or has been. Mm. I mean, one of my favorite things to share with people who've just never thought about this before is that here in the U.S., when the American Medical Association designated obesity a disease, they had their own internal counsel research whether or not they should designate it as a disease. That counsel said no. And then they voted to designate mm. it as a disease anyway. So I have questions about why an organization might do that. I have theories, right? Mm. I have lots of questions. And and so I think it is not unreasonable for us mm. to be 
to be critical, to be even, I would even use the word suspicious when it comes to mm. the, the, you know, why we believe what we believe about fat. And then when you tie that to the bias that already exists, we're not, we're not yeah. looking for ways to find out if it's okay to be fat. We're looking for ways to justify why it's not. Yeah. A couple of the things that I found really interesting that challenged the establishment in doing this research were that even if there is a causation there, it's an average, it's a propensity. Mm -hmm. And that means that they're still likely to be, and there are many people who are considered overweight, even obese, who are healthy with all the biological health markers. And this, this movement towards, you know, fat but healthy in a sense, where the challenge to the medical establishment is don't look to see if someone's overweight, just look at their biological markers, mm -hmm. take their blood pressure, look at their cholesterol. That's what determines whether they're, they're unhealthy or not. And you're sort of using this heuristic of weight as a sort of shortcut, which can yeah. be very unhelpful because that person could well be very healthy. And there are a lot of healthy people who are overweight. And there are a lot of people who are thin, who have terrible health markers yes. and, you know, eat crap and, uh, you know, don't exercise. So it's a sort of heuristic that's taken too much power. When we base all of our understanding of health on a connection to weight, we don't just disadvantage fat people, we disadvantage all people because we create the idea that all other people are magically healthy by being thin. And in fact, they mm. are not magically healthy by being thin. And so we, we miss important things about everybody in terms of what we could be diagnosing, what we could be preventing, what we could be getting like, you know, earlier intervention on. And then, of course, you know, I, as you said, am not a health expert. My advocacy is around the civil rights related to being fat and around changing, you know, social perceptions around being fat. And so for me, I'm always also interested in the question of, um, so what? So if, if all of it were true, then how are we using it against fat people and how are we actually making fat people's lives worse? To move on from health, but I just want to stay in the related question of how hard or easy it is to actually lose weight. And most people, including many people who see themselves as overweight, think that their problem stems from a lack of discipline. And, and if they just didn't eat so much or ate more healthily or did the right diet, they'd lose weight and would keep the weight off. And that really was my assumption before I saw some of the evidence in preparing for this podcast of just how damn hard it is to keep weight off, even if you want to lose it. So be before we move on to some of these more um, interesting issues, in a sense, uh, like why you would want to lose weight in the first place, could, could you outline just a little how hard it is and why it is so hard to permanently change our weight? I think it's hard for a variety of reasons. I mean, I think there's increasing research that shows us that it's hard because of biology, right? That that so much of our body size is determined by our biology. Yeah. And I know that some people say, well, then why are we getting fatter as a culture if it's all biological? But if the biological markers that are then combined with different ways of eating, different kinds of food, different habits, et cetera, it's going to affect people differently depending on their own biology. I think also that our lifestyle in a variety of ways, not just the sort of like, do you work out and do you eat at McDonald's kind of stereotypical ways that people throw out, but also things like, do you work too hard? Do you get enough sleep? You know, do you, are you doing the kind of self-care, you know, Helen referenced the sort of like mental health challenges that, that are often, you know, we often see in fat folks, if whether that's coming from biology or whether that's coming from culture, do you have the resources that you need to manage them? Right. Do you have a healthcare system? Mm -hmm system that provides you with those resources? Do you have community support? Do you have the economic means? 
So I think there's a lot of social determinants of health that come into play that also affect people's ability to lose weight or not if they choose to. Um, you know, again, like I think it's really important for us to say, even if you believe that obesity is a diagnosis, which is something that as fat, fat liberationists don't believe that, right? We believe mm. that that's a false construct. But even if you do believe that, then what? Do, then what are you given as tools to do something about it? Um, and you know, mm. and mm. and yeah. what kind yeah. of what you know, what kind of is it something that is fixable, or is it as fixable as we've been led to believe? Helen, you know, when, when you think about these factors that Tigress has outlined here that seem to constrain our agency, our ability to lose weight, like genetic, socioeconomic factors, she's mentioned access to healthy foods, the biological factors that mean that if we grow up with a lot of fat, it becomes very hard to lose weight. How far do these factors constrain our sense of free will, you know, our agency to change the script given to us? And I was thinking as an aside, you know, that there are clearly genetic and environmental factors like poverty or maybe trauma in one's upbringing that can make it harder for some people to rise up and get into good colleges and be top of certain professions. But we don't tell them to give up. We, we want to support them and encourage them to work harder. How do you think about fat within this context? Should we, should we encourage people to double down, even though it's hard and lose some weight and get to a medically healthy level? Or, or do we use it as a constraint to you know, to suggest that, you know, one doesn't, one, one shouldn't try because there are too many factors preventing it. There are, I, I think that the last research I was reading, more than 50 genes related to likelihood of obesity that, that seem to, to come up in, in different situations, as, as Tigris was saying, um, work differently and, and account for 50 to 70% of the explanation for why some people seem to find it very difficult to lose weight mm. if they, if they want to so we we have this but what i would like to see as well picking up on what tigris said earlier and which relates to this is that yeah my weight uh, problems and, and and my health conditions associated with it people don't say well so we this is is not seen as an anomaly in in wider society you know these health problems they're they're associated with it and a lot of fat activists in the body positivity movement want to to point out that that this doesn't affect everybody and they will often sort of show us you know a fat gymnast a fat um, marathon runner all these um, amazing um, fat people doing wonderful things I mean last last March I was at a, a fitness boot camp walking miles and miles, and I, I describe myself as fat but fit. So this this does happen. But what I think it feels like to many people who could do with fat activism is putting in front of us the a super fat marathon runner is, is a bit like getting out Barack Obama and saying, okay, now racism is gone, when actually what we really want to a fat activist to be focusing on is not only the fat people who are not experiencing symptoms, who are not having problems, whose work lives are not being disrupted, whose romantic lives are not being disrupted, who are feeling good about themselves and positive about themselves, but also the people who are struggling with their, their health. So a, a fat activism which didn't, you know, cause people to you know, call me a, a self-hating fat and suffering from Stockholm syndrome if I if I talk about trying to lose weight simply because I want to be able to move about more easily. That That is what I'd like to see. But can you lose weight, Helen? Can people lose weight? 
Or is it, a, is it a sort of myth that keeps people feeling ashamed of the weight that they are? I philosophically don't believe in, in free will. So mm. I don't think that it, it's a choice. If you are somebody who is hungry <laughs> a hell of a lot of the time, I don't think you can choose not to be. I don't think everybody can can choose. I I, I have a, a couple of, of, of friends who are hungry all the time and they, they manage somehow to just be really disciplined. One of them described it as a ravening beast, but I don't think that's a choice. I think that for a lot of people living with the acceptance that if you eat enough not to be starvingly hungry, you're going to be heavily overweight is a reality. And then we need to treat people as an individual. So then we can look perhaps at ways um, to limit potential health problems. So in increasing fitness, um, having different kinds of foods, as, as Tigris was saying, better sleep patterns. And looking at the, the reasons that somebody is fat. Um, for example, I'm, I'm privileged in that I naturally um, stick around 70, 75 kilograms, 150 pounds plus, um, without having to think too much about food. But I am epileptic. I have a neurological condition. I'm epileptic and I have cerebrovascular accidents. So anti-epileptic medication makes me double my weight immediately I come off it it goes away again so this for me that the, the problem is yeah quite quite simple for other people it's not that simple if somebody's really really hungry all the time then I, I think we need certain specialists to work with them you know is this a psychological thing are you perhaps you know association with mental illness are you comfort eating is there a, a hole inside you are you feeling generally hungry and then there's perhaps practical methods for sort of bulking out clever meal planning bulking out without ha having too many calories anything we can so you'd do be using the you know all the tools at the disposal to be able to support people to lose the weight they can essentially yeah on, on an individualistic level on an individual level does you know the drugs that are now available the azempic type drugs is that a paradigm changer for this question of whether one could lose weight or, you know, how, how do you think about those drugs? I, I feel positively about them. I've, I, I, I took it for a couple of months, but unfortunately it conflicted with other, with other medication. It, it did, but it, it works by sort of con controlling appetite. So I, I think that is certainly something that, that people whose appetite is, is the problem should be able to have access yeah. to. Tigris? What, I mean, does Azempic change the paradigm and sort of, in a sense, undermine much of what the fat activist movement's, you know, views are based on? It changes the paradigm in a couple of ways. One thing it does is it makes the conversation even more constant and it creates and it, mm. it reinforces the narrative that you could lose weight if you would just do it. So if you don't, mm. there's something wrong with you. It also it raises this constant question of like, is this the end of the need for fat rights activism because everybody's going to be thin now? And if, if you actually pay attention to this whole class of drugs, even when they do the absolute best at what they say they're going to do, that's going to reduce some of the population, some of their weight. There are still going to be fat people. There's still going to be very fat people. And there's still going to be people across the spectrum of fat even if they take these drugs and successfully, in quotation marks, successfully lose weight 
at the level that is promised without any major side effects, which we, you know, these drugs have been better studied than some past weight loss drugs, but still not as thoroughly studied as we would like them to be to know what the real long-term effects are. But even if people stay on them forever and lose the amount of weight that they promise that you will lose if you stay on them forever, many of those people are still going to be fat by both social and medical standards. And it just creates this, um, it just creates this even more constant exposure of fat people to the idea that everybody else thinks that you shouldn't be like you should not be so it's everything from the person who says including your doctor have you thought about trying this to the headlines that say things like you know when you see the headline that says ozempic's gonna make everybody thinner and that's gonna save the airline industries millions of dollars in jet fuel what that does is Mm -hmm. that headline ratchets up the way that people treat you as the fat person on the plane Mm. You're just swimming upstream more and more. Every area of life. Yeah. That's right. That's well, right. Well, Helen, Helen, I just was going to stay with you and we'll move to some of the more interesting areas, I think, about what fat actually symbolizes in our culture. And I think we can all agree that fat's not just associated with health. Otherwise, anyone who doesn't exercise or, or eats too many unhealthy foods would be subject to an equal amount of discrimination as they seem, from my research, to be roughly equally correlative with health issues, maybe fitness e- even more so. But there is definitely an oversized meaning, if you'll forgive my pun, that that comes with fat. And I wanted to run a few of my thoughts by you to see if they resonate and then, of course, hear hear yours. First, given the belief, as we're talking, that people can control their weight, there's a sense that if you're overweight, you're undisciplined, even lazy, and that you're rejecting a basic personal responsibility to look after yourself and your health. And these aren't character virtues today in particular. Second, there's a sort of old school moral indignation around sins like gluttony that are part of our cultural inheritance. And third, there are the aesthetic norms, question of beauty and ugliness, which which all feed into our desire to be attractive and that basic evolutionary desire to find a mate. And where at various points of the past, being fat might have been associated with being beautiful as it signaled wealth, with the ability to eat what you want whilst the, the skinny poor toiled in the fields. Today, obesity is disproportionately a problem of of low socioeconomic groups in the West with the ability to access health foods and leisure time to exercise difficult. And, you know, well, that can be seen as a luxury, the ability to access health foods and and healthy foods and, and leisure time. And there's the sort of healthism as well with beauty and being healthy and attractiveness now connected. So what are your thoughts on all of this? And why has fat developed such a powerful and generally negative set of associations? More broadly in society, we we have a negative view of obesity, which has which has changed. So, I, ideas have have changed over time. So, in, uh, my my area of study is is the thirteenth century, and and descriptions of beauty then involved is describing women who would now be considered verging on somewhere between overweight and obese. And this is, uh, as you've said, because of um, nutritional standards. You know that you, you need a certain amount of body fat to, to ovulate. So there's an attractiveness in women who have these extra sort of stores, and so we have this. But I think it's very, very important to, to distinguish, to set out that there is no, absolutely no moral obligation to be thin, even if being slim were, were to make all of your health problems disappear and completely rule out any possibility of heart attack, diabetes or anything else. There is no, you do not owe anybody else any obligation 
to be healthy, to be to be thin. So when we say should we aim to be thin, then the answer to that is is, is no. I, I am quite neo liberal on this my, mm. my choice my, this is my choice feminism which is if you make that decision for yourself then nobody else has the right to tell you not to the other meaning of should though where we often use should is when there is a goal that that we have so if i want to achieve certain things should I lose weight in order for that to happen then then yes I should if there are sort of health risks I want I want to lower I I should Should you do it to be more attractive if your aim is to be more attractive or is that the problem that one needs to solve in the first place the link between attractiveness and and weight I mean the more, more recent studies that I I've been looking at, at you know in in relation to to women in particular is is that weight doesn't make a huge a difference. So, you know, a prettiness of a face was the thing that, that men most often described as as an attractive feature. And so, so you know, a, a woman who who is a a size eighteen or a size ten are all you know all could be considered quite quite beautiful by a range of men. This changes when people are very very thin or very very fat. Then this um, the attractiveness. It is is regarded quite quite differently. There is some evidence that um, you know sh- showing more fat people makes uh, decreases um, or in- increases people's likelihood to to be attracted to fat to fat people. So, so there, there's there's stuff going on here. But when it comes to attractiveness, I I think you know as a as a liberal feminist, I I think this is um, really not something that anybody has any responsibility to to aim for unless they want to themselves and that's that's also something else that i i think um tigress earlier was speaking to this whole sort of capitalist thing with the diet diet industry and there is so much money to be made in helping people to lose weight but then we have to think what is driving that and i i think asking fat people why do you want to lose weight? Actually understanding why they are sort of driving this this industry, making it profitable. Is it because of a social stigma? Is it because of you know feelings of, of self-loathing that, that are culturally constructed? Or are you uncomfortable? Well, what would you say, Tigress? I've got some questions about moving to the fat activist side, but if you if you want to briefly sort of just respond to what you think the reasons are, if you were going to ask and, and really survey people, why do they want to lose weight? What are they going to say? I think people are going to say that they want to be healthy because they think that's what they're supposed to say. And often yeah. people who really, it is purely aesthetic. I think I would be more attractive if I were this size, still feel yeah. a lot of pressure in the current culture to say that the reason is because of health or or because they yeah. don't want to be perceived as vain or because like it, you know, they just, um, it's because we are critical of diet culture and the diet industry, especially the commercial diet industry, that people want to move, move their desire to lose weight or to stay small in another category. I do think it's important when we talk about the multi-billion dollar diet industry and the multi-billion dollar medical weight management industries that we remember that all that money is not coming from fat people. It is also coming from people who are not fat, who are terrified of becoming fat. And some of that is about 
personal self-esteem and feelings of wanting to be attractive to others and stuff. And some of it is also about not wanting to be treated in the culture the way fat people are treated in the culture. So if we have social change, if we, if we agitate and advocate for social change that makes the world better for fat people, then the, the question of body autonomy and whether you choose to lose weight or not becomes a more real choice. It becomes a more like informed consent choice versus a coerced choice where, you know, if the only way you're going to get paid fairly is by you losing weight, the only way you're going to get, for example, the same price on your health benefits here in the U.S., we have these workplace wellness programs, which often incentivize weight loss to change how much you pay for your health benefits. If losing weight is going to save you thousands of dollars, you have a different motivation to lose weight than if those, if, if all the bodies were equal in that regard, and then it's only up to sort of like your personal feelings about your body. We don't have these feelings in a vacuum. We have them in a culture that has a lot of systemic disadvantage for fat people and a lot of sociocultural disadvantage for fat people. There's always a a tension, isn't there, between not wanting ideology to swamp, you know, what people, individuals think, and we have to honour what individuals think and what they want. At the same time, we have to recognise that what individuals think is influenced by a whole range of factors, capitalist factors and cultural factors. As hard as it is to change our bodies, like the questions that you were asking us about how hard is it to lose weight or how hard it would it be to keep the weight off if you lost weight, mm. all those questions, as hard as those things are, it often seems like an easier solution than trying to change the entire culture. If you tell me that if I lose 50 pounds, I can be more comfortable at the movie theater, that sounds a lot easier than me trying to get every movie theater in America to change their seats. Well, it seems like both are hard from what from what I've heard. Um, changing weight's hard and changing society's hard. Tigress, I want to get into the fat activist movement a little bit more in more detail now, which you're obviously the forefront of. As I understand it, sees fat discrimination as, as a form of discrimination akin to sexism, racism, homophobia, with all the intersectional links of, of these social justice movements. And so, so given that assumption that fat is a sort of unchanging and unchangeable identity in the same way that one is now seen to have a racial identity, it makes sense to want to liberate fat from marginalization and oppression and to celebrate fat as a positive identity, even with a sense of pride. Now, I imagine for many people who are sympathetic to just how hard it is to change one's weight and who would have no hesitation condemning any form of uh, fat shaming or discrimination, there's still a bit of an awkward leap to equating fat with immutable things like the color of one's skin or sexual preference. And, And then there's, of course, the concern that whilst we don't want to discriminate against fat, We also don't want ideology to cloud scientific consensus and to actively discourage people, even shaming them potentially, from trying to lose weight where they can given the health concerns. Is there a way to advocate for and protect fat people without going that extra step and seeing fat as an immutable trait that should be celebrated? We don't actually say that fat is an immutable trait. At least at NAFA, we don't say that. We say that that we say that fat occurs as a natural part of human body diversity, but we don't actually say mm-hmm. it's immutable. That is something, that is an argument that has often been made by fat activists. But for for me, mm-hmm. and, and in my leadership at NAFA, I actually don't care whether fat is mutable or not. He, fat people deserve mm-hmm. civil rights, whether we can or have to be fat or not, right? Like fat, thin, whatever. Mm-hmm. And when we argue for these civil rights under the law in the U.S., we talk about weight, height, and any combination of, 
any combination of those things. And we actually care about all the directions of that. It's just that our work focuses on the fat people because that's who we advocate for, right? But we, we don't want people's body size to be the determining factor in whether they're treated equitably in the society. And it's not true that it's only immutable characteristics where we offer those kinds of protections. We offer that kind of protection mm-hmm. about religion and people can change their religious status. We offer that kind of protection uh, about pregnancy and people are not pregnant all the time or make choices about being pregnant or not. Like there are other ways that we protect civil rights in addition to those immutable categories. And so I think, you know, I think there's a lot to question about the mutability of fat. And I also think that if I, if I were the absolute stereotype that the trolls say, that I just sat on my couch eating McDonald's all day, when it's time for me to go to work, I deserve to be paid fairly at my job. If I can do the job, I deserve to be paid fairly. The end, right? And so I think we can advocate for fat people regardless of why those people are fat. Yeah, and I'm um, look. We, we, Helen is, is is would be the expert to come back and and question some of these things. But the civil rights movement sits within the sort of liberal ideas about fairness and pe- treating people individually and as de- deserving of respect. But the social justice movement and the in, sort of intersectional movement has has taken that in a slightly different direction and sees these things as identities, you know, r- rather than just protecting individual rights. You know, how do you see the intersectional links that work between fat discrimination and other forms of discrimination, particularly sexism, uh, but also racism and homophobia that's mentioned in your website? How how do they connect? Well, they connect because anti-fatness shows up in the barrier access and all kinds of other challenges in all of those other identities, too, that you just mentioned. I mean, we know that anti-fatness disproportionately impacts people who are from black and brown communities. And we right. we have a lot to say as fat activists about, uh, and as as scholars in a variety of fields have a lot to say about the, the where our ideas about health and beauty come from and how they are connected to race, white supremacy, colonialism. And so there's an there's an obvious and direct link between size-related issues and and racial issues. We know mm. that there are that, that you know perceptions of bodies can be different in different LGBTQIA communities. We know that, for example, b- barriers to things like gender affirming care can change related to your BMI, for example. So, like, there are ways that it directly connects with you know LGBTQIA communities. There are ways it connects with uh, disability as um, an identity and also as something that can be immutable for some people and has been you know has changed for other people over the course of their lives. But we know that um, you know that being disabled and fat can create additional barriers and additional access issues, mm-hmm. additional challenges around mobility devices, uh, medical treatment, etc. So like there are all kinds of ways that our movement overlaps with these sure. other movements. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, at the core of it is gender and and the predominant effect on on women of of weight. But but Helen, you know, what, you've written about this, and 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 you know, I know you're concerned about some of the ideology that sits with the heart of the social justice movement. What are your concerns with the fat activist movement and the way that science and meaning around fat has been pulled into this social justice ideology and paradigm? Yeah. What well, what concerns me is the kind of a fat activist who is against sort of medical science on 
on principle. And this mm. often comes from um, various kinds of theory, sort of coming coming from Foucault and his concept of of biopower, where as a, a society we we put people into biological categories in order to control and discipline their their bodies, their sexuality, their their size. So I am concerned when this kind of approach is taken, as Tigris is pointing out, that society will um, constantly push push the message that that's uh, of negativity and health about um, fatness and that there needs to be some pushback with that about uh, discrimination and, you know, fat doesn't always mean you're unhealthy. But I, I think then looking at fat activism itself, the people who are meant to, to advocate for fat people, I am concerned when their activism prevents medical research, when fat activists um, tried to, in London, tried to get cancer research to stop, you know, releasing data about how many, the the correlation between obesity and, and cancer. If um, doctors uh, start to be afraid to raise those those kinds of issues, I I, I found, for example, I, I I was told that had a had a letter saying my my medical hist- history suggests I need a, a test for diabetes. I I called and said, so what aspect of my medical hist- history suggests this? And they simply got very very flustered and did not want to tell me. And I know the only thing is is my weight, and I, I would like for them to be able to say that you know the, the correlation between people with a BMI of 50 and type 2 diabetes which I, I am pre-diabetic um, it is is very high because I know this already but some people might not so actually you know sort of finding that balance where we're not getting in the way of um, providing enabling fat people to make informed decisions about their health. We're not uncritically um, suggesting that that science is is infallible. Things change all all the time. Um, Different studies find different things, and that's part of the the good thing about science is is that it it tries to falsify itself. So, yeah, we, we we can work on... Um, making sure that scientific studies are asking the right questions. But that getting in the way of, of, of health care. So, so you think actually you're, you're intimating, Helen, that there's amongst healthcare professionals as well, there's a fear of talking about the science as they understand it because it might be seen as, as fat shaming. Yes. Now, it might be... That there's there's good evidence to 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 suggest that if fat people are constantly told that their weight is causing a problem, they stop going to doctors. So doctors may not want to tell them that. But there's also a fear that that this is is prejudicial in in the same way that it it would be against um, somebody for their race or their their gender identity or their their sexuality. And so I, I have been taking to asking doctors because my nephrologist um, sort of in, informed me that, that my weight was impacting my, my kidney function, which, which it is. And he was very, very tentative ab- about that. So it's a sort of movement of extremes from doctors overreading weight into things to doctors being nervous to talk about yes. their, their belief that weight might, might be an influencing factor. Can I just go back to your point about um, Foucault and I guess these sort of 
philosophical underpinnings of much of the social justice movement, which is this idea that knowledge and power are inextricably linked, that one needs to not accept science on its own, but look behind the systems of production of knowledge, because in a sense, there's no there's no simple truth. There's just truth that is a production of of, of the power knowledge paradigm, and 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 this, you know, this has been a massive challenge to the liberal view that there is a truth that's out there that we need to take you know use scientific principles to get us closer. That science is never perfect, but it's constantly challenging itself. But we're moving in a certain direction. A sort of there's a goalpost. How does this relate to? Fat activism, um, and I know you. You know you've sort of written about this in your book. Oh yes, it's a wonderful, wonderful book um, at, on on diet dietetics, which um, suggests that in, instead of medical um, science, we unlock the knowledge of fat people using poetry. And I, I think that yes, if this is some kind of you know personal exploration conversation, fine. But if we are actually wanting to look at uh, what is true about about weight and enable people to make informed decisions about their diet then we need to oppose a sort of unthinking dismissal of of science so with a lot of the people who tend to do fat activism by um through through queer theory queering things they often comes down to a hypothesis which goes a bit like because we once thought homosexuality was a disorder and now we recognize that it's perfectly normal and natural our current belief that being uh, morbid obese uh, is unhealthy is also a social construct now that's a, a proposition it's either true or it isn't and although yeah that scientists scientific that things sort of uh, studies vary and they they always will and that's good meta studies on balance show that that there are those those health conditions and so i think any any kind of fat activism which is drawing on on critical uh, theories which regard different ways of knowing or which regard knowledge don't don't use the correspondence model of of truth in which something is true if it corresponds with reality is going to be a problem for those of us who want to act according to reality thank you lloyd i'm going to hand over to you now That was part one of our Principle of Charity conversation. But join us next week for part two, where Lloyd meets the guests on the couch to throw them curveballs with unfiltered, hard and personal questions. And before we go, here's a quick word from our partners at The Ethics Centre. The Ethics Centre is an independent not-for-profit that for over 30 years has advocated for a more ethical society. We're a proud partner of this podcast and its spirit of curiosity and generosity. Through all our work, we bring people together, create space for difficult conversations and encourage all to live and act according to their values. Check out our website for free access to articles, podcasts and videos that unpack the complexities of everyday life at www.ethics.org.au.